Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the um, the third class on the uh, three aspects of the Eightfold Path. Uh, the Eightfold Path is often characterized as a path of heightened wisdom, heightened virtue, and heightened concentration. And so following our class on right view and right intention, the wisdom factors, um, we then looked at the virtuous factors or the behavior factors of the Eightfold Path. Uh, it is in being mindful of our behavior, unskillful behavior versus skillful behavior, or wrong behavior versus right behavior, uh, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. It is by being mindful of our behavior that we're able to recognize the quality of our minds. Whatever we hold in our minds to be true about ourselves in relation to the world, no matter how contradictory they are to the Four Noble Truths, will always play out in our behavior. That's the brilliance of what Siddhartha Gautama realize that if we're simply mindful of our behavior, we'll be able to recognize the things in our, our thinking that we need to change ourselves. And that's the only, the only person that can change our thoughts, words, and deeds is, of course, ourselves. There's no outside agency that can work on us. Uh, there's no um, magical or mystical power that, uh, that through simple desire that we be better people will instantaneously deliver us to be better people. We have to do the work ourselves. And the Buddha also understood that it's an aspect of uh, wrong view and wrong intention that obscures our behavior as a useful tool for recognizing what we're holding in mind. And that leads to a constant state of distraction. So the Buddha taught and understood that the primary foundation for his Dhamma was a meditation practice that leads to increasing concentration or increasing jhana. And that the Buddha characterized as skillful or right meditation. So the implication here throughout the, the Eightfold Path is that there's skillful behavior and there's unskillful behavior. Skillful behavior is framed by the Eightfold Path and re, re, relies on refined mindfulness that is supported by jhana meditation. Unskillful behavior, unskillful actions, and unskillful way of living in the world has no control over it. It has no structure. Uh, and again, the Buddha understood that a mind that is constantly prone to distraction needs a structure to deepen concentration or nothing can be developed. So grasping after magical and mystical concept, concepts or engaging in rites and rituals that we hope will change the way we think and the way we act can, can bear no fruit at all. It's only another distraction. When we get to the heart of the matter, when we practice the Eightfold Path, then we're, then we're developing a practice that gets us to actually recognize and change our own thoughts, words, and deeds. So um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter because you did, but I'm going to read a, a part of it through right effort. If I can find that. Um, jhana meditation, jhana means concentration. Jhana meditation within the framework of the Eightfold Path develops non-distraction or concentration from the effects of clinging, craving, desire, and aversion. So the, the, the second noble truth, the first noble truth is stress and suffering arises in the world. 
The second noble truth says that craving for and clinging to views rooted in ignorance of four noble truths is the cause of stress. And that stress is often characterized as a threefold um, a threefold way of hurting ourselves known as greed, aversion, and ongoing deluded thinking. So when we address the, the, the root causes of our distress, meaning craving for and clinging to ignorant views through the Eightfold Path, we're able to actually address the problem that we hope to address. We're not distracting ourselves by a, a, a fabricated practice. We're getting right to the heart of the matter, which is what Siddhartha Gautama wanted. He, he wasn't interested in spending the rest of his life in some um, nondescript spiritual search. He wanted to understand the nature of suffering. And in his brilliance, he discovered it. And for 2,600 years, he's been teaching others to do the same. The Buddha continues, As clinging begins to diminish, a practice, these are my words, as clinging begins to diminish, a practice of developing heightened concentration becomes effective. Right effort is the first of the factors of heightened concentration. So these are the Buddha's words. Right effort is generating the skillful desire, actions and diligence to avoid inappropriate thoughts, words and deeds that have yet arisen. It's, it's a lot of words that simply point to the practice, the basic practice of the Dhamma, which is in this moment we practice wise restraint informed by the Eightfold Path. So as we develop an understanding of what we, we need to be mindful of in order to avoid, this becomes possible. Avoiding what has yet arisen. And that takes a measure of concentration, doesn't it? That's what the Buddha is leading us towards right meditation or right concentration by saying that. Next, the Buddha teaches that we should abandon inappropriate thoughts, words and deeds that have yet arisen, that have arisen, not yet arisen. So how do we do that? Well, it's through by being mindful of our behavior, what we looked at last week, that we know what we have to abandon that has arisen. It's playing out in our lives. Our thoughts, words, and our deeds are manifesting right here and right now, whether we want to admit it or not. And most people don't want to admit it. Most people will find a way to excuse their less than skillful behavior or blame other people for their behavior or blame worldly conditions. Of course, none of that is true. Nobody else is responsible for the way that I think or the way that I act based on that thinking except me. And, it's, and that's where all the power of the Dhamma comes from, by the way. The power of the Eightfold Path comes from finally bringing me back to the point that I'm now taking responsibility for my thoughts, words, and deeds, and I'm not caught up in concepts or an analytical explanation for why I act the way that I act. I don't need to know that. I don't need to know that I, it, it, my, my mom you know, didn't give me dinner when I was three years old because I was being mean that day. I don't think my mom ever did that. That that has nothing to do with anything that's occurring except it might be a cause, but I don't need to worry about the cause. All I need is a clear look at my behavior to know what I need to change. Where it came from is completely irrelevant and a distraction in Dhamma practice. What isn't irrelevant is this is what's occurring right here and right now. Because that manifests as awakening as I continue the Dhamma as I continue Dhamma practice. It's being present for my life as my life unfolds. The Buddha continues. We need to develop appropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have yet arisen. Again, it goes right back to last week. How do we develop appropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have yet arisen? We integrate all the tenets of the Eightfold Path, and we're mindful of that behavior that we must abandon, simply because it's a distraction and it's hurtful towards ourselves and others. The Buddha continues. And we maintain appropriate thoughts, words, and deeds 
for continual development of non-confusion and skillful qualities that have yet arisen. And what are appropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have yet arisen? They're framed by the eightfold, by the virtuous factors of the eightfold path and informed by right view and right intention. Right intention is holding in mind the intention in this moment to recognize and abandon craving for and clinging to ignorant views. And of course, those views will always manifest in our speech, action, and livelihood in thought, word, and deed. Again, everything is tied back into the Eightfold Path. And this, as we looked at last week, and that's rooted in dependent origination, what the Buddha actually awakened to. So right view emphasizes the importance of abandoning non-virtuous acts. Being mindful of right view brings understanding that it is by strong attachment to the ego personality, the self-referential ego personality, that non-virtuous acts occur. As current non-virtuous behavior is abandoned, virtuous behavior can further be further developed. Through mindful awareness of what is to be developed and what is to be abandoned, appropriate thoughts, words, and deeds are now the foundation for a continued right effort. And I'm going to stop there. Again, you all read this. And uh, right action and right livelihood follow the same um, guidelines given to right effort. And that can, that can easily be... Um, seen as engaging in speech, action, and livelihood that is harmless towards others and towards ourselves. Another way of saying that is in thought, word, and deed. We remain harmless towards ourselves and towards others. And that's a very simple thing for human beings to understand once they have a little bit of concentration. Every one of us knows that we've done things that have hurt ourselves and have hurt other people. The problem with that behavior, and it starts very early on, is that type of behavior does something that we call conditioned thinking within the framework of Dhamma practice. And perhaps the most pernicious and hurtful aspect of conditioned thinking is recognizing that we have inadvertently, without mindful intention, hurt ourselves and hurt others. And that starts forming a conditioned mind that's rooted in fear that I don't have control over the way I think and I act. And I act. It wasn't my intention to hurt myself. It wasn't my intention to hurt others. And yet, my behavior caused harm to myself and others. It's very difficult to see, but as we deepen our under, understanding of ourselves and Dhamma practice, as we deepen our concentration, we're able to access these very subtle levels of conditioned thinking. But it, it's very important that we do it in a very gentle way. Because if we start discovering aspects of our, our behavior that we know is hurtful towards ourselves and others, and we judge ourselves for it, what are we doing? We're simply piling hurt upon hurt. When we recognize behavior that we have engaged with and perhaps clung to in the past that is hurtful towards ourselves and others, but in a very gentle way, we simply realize it does not fit within the tenets of the Eightfold Path, let me let it go. And that's the very gentle way of looking at and dealing with and engaging in the Eightfold Path that brings true liberation and freedom without increasing our distraction by looking at how awful I am, how foolish I am, how undama-like my thinking is. All of that is being harsh on ourselves and it has no bearing on developing the Dhamma. So a, a common underlying theme of human life that leads to wrong speech, wrong action, and wrong livelihood is the self-loathing that develops into conditioned thinking rooted in behavior that we found 
was harmful towards ourselves and others, no matter how inadvertent it is. And perhaps that's, that's the, the most important aspect of looking at this. Because behavior that we engage in consciously, it, it, let me use a strong word, maybe even out of hatred for someone or something, is rather obvious. But it's the subtle hurts that we've applied to ourselves and to others that are much more subtle and much more difficult to see, but that are, that are revealed through authentic Dhamma practice. So I'm going to leave this, leave this right here, and uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say, what you've learned uh, so far in your Dhamma practice, and what you think about the concentration factors. And Henrietta is right up front there, so I'll just, let me ask Henrietta, how are you doing, Henrietta, and what do you think about today's class? Um, yeah, it was, um, it's interesting. Um, I actually don't have much more to add than that, really. Um, I'm still just sort of like finding my way. How, how do you, how are you finding your way? Are you, the, the practice is going well for you? Yeah, the practice is going fine. Um, and just continuing to read, make notes. Great. Great. Thank you for joining, Henrietta. Jordan, how are you this morning, or this afternoon, or this evening, <laughs> whatever time it is for you? Yeah, probably the latest for me. It's almost ten o'clock here, so it's oh. uh, probably not the ideal time to be meditating. Um, I'm doing well. Um, I find some of um, some of the readings and some of the I guess some of the Buddha's words very vague, and I guess they're intentionally vague as to not. Um, if you, if you did make it specific and do, oh, for example, if you're worried about this thing, two, two and a half thousand years ago, it would have been completely different things we're worrying about. So in some ways, I find it, I find it a bit too vague. Like, you must, the, the right behavior is abstaining from the wrong thoughts. And it, it seems sometimes a bit, yeah, very vague. So I have to try and put that into my own, um, way of understanding the world, my own problems, and my own um, day-to-day um, thought processes and speech processes. And um, personally, I think I have more to work on on um, on um, practicing harmless speech. But I think actions and livelihood generally, I'm I'm quite happy with the way I work. But I'll, I like a good gossip. Um, so yeah, that's something I will. I will work on. And the meditation went well today. Um, not as well as other weeks. Well, in, this week in general, in my day-to-day practice, um, just far more um, thoughts creeping in than normal. But um, yeah, I guess. How, how is your your day-to-day meditation, John, and practice going? Um, well, I don't do guided meditation anymore. Well, since last week, my phone broke, so it's just just ten minutes of silence, um, usually in the morning. I tried to do 10 minutes in the evening. Just longer than that seems to be a, big, a, a bigger thing to to begin. I know I should, but it's just a seems like a bigger chunk out of my day. And it's, I just stay, oh, just 10 minutes in, and it's easier, bite-sized, manageable chunk to do. It's interesting you said you're having more thoughts creep in. I would strongly suggest, Jordan, that you use the guided meditations because simple silence doesn't provide the structure for deepening your concentration. You're just sitting in silence. Uh, the, the guidance in the guided meditations from the website relate directly to the four foundations of mindfulness and remind us every five minutes to come back to the sensation of breathing and not be just caught up in the thoughts or even just an experience of silence. So, uh, and, and again, I would pick, pick that up. They're on the website. 
Um, if you find that 10 minutes twice a day is too difficult right now uh, to fit in, then do five minutes twice a day. But I, I would strongly suggest, and you've heard me say that, I, you're going to have a much more effective practice if you practice for five minutes twice a day than 10 minutes once a day. It, it, there's just that balance in a 24-hour day. And the other thing is that the, the conditions that we're dealing with, the conditions of ignorance of Four Noble Truths, uh, are exactly the same today as they were 2,600 years ago. Uh, it's just that there's much more detail involved in our lives today. But again, we're, we're addressing the same issues. Uh, and one more thing, I would suggest you go back and review uh, the teachings on right speech, right action, right livelihood, because they're very specific about what we're looking at. There's, there's really nothing vague about those aspects of the Eightfold Path. So I'm glad you brought those up. Thank you, Jordan. Glad you joined us today. For sure. Thank you. Victoria, how are you? reflecting on what you're saying about like the subtle hurts that we do to ourselves and others I think that's a good um, uh, sort of reminder because I um, yeah. yeah as as I've been observing my own you know self dialogue I think um, yeah, you know, I think I think I've gotten better at um, not judging myself so harshly but I do find it creeping up in very quite subtle ways so um um yeah i think that's something that i want to continue to to observe um and my practice is going well i've been i've been sitting consistently twice a day i've been using the guided meditations um but i guess you know due to maybe impermanence or, you know, whatever's going on with me that day or that week, you know, there, there are some, sometimes there are certain days that are easier. Like there are certain days where I'm more distractible than other days. There are certain days where I'm in a better mood or in a darker mood than in other days. So on those, when I'm sitting on those days where maybe I'm in like a darker mood or it's more challenging, um, I find myself getting a, I try not to judge, but I try, I find myself getting a little bit like, like, yeah, I'm judging it. And I get like, I feel kind of frustrated and discouraged because I'm having like, you know, oh, it's just hard, you know, like a, like if it's a busy day or it's harder for me to concentrate or that sort of thing. So I'm trying to refrain from doing that, but it's Good. such a habit, I think. Yeah. Um, and then it get, completely gets me caught up in my thinking. So I don't know if you have any. Well, I, do do you see what you just described as an aspect of self-loathing? Um, yeah, I guess because it's like I'm judging myself. Yes, and and it it's that sounds pretty harsh, self-loathing, but that it's it's best to describe it that way because there, there's this um this way of living in the world that that used to be just ascribed to only the West, but it really pervasive around the world that somehow we can better ourselves by first finding out where we're wrong, beat ourselves up for it over a little bit. For a while, and then we'll change. And of course, that never happens. It just increases that self-loathing. The what the Buddha discovered is that we find the behavior that no longer serves us and simply abandon it. If we start picking at it or blaming ourselves for it, we're we're just reinforcing the behavior, aren't we? So you you said something very important, Victoria, that you're noticing these very subtle levels of to use the word self-loathing or, or not being gentle with yourself, and that's a key to Dharma practice, but also shows you that Dhamma practice is, is developing in you the way it's intended. Because it, it is just that focus on my thoughts, words, and deeds 
that as I recognize and abandon one as unskillful, I'm actually liberating myself through Dhamma practice. And, and that's what you're describing. So good for you. Glad you joined us today. Thanks. How are you, Alex? Hi, John. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Good. Uh, good to see you all. Um, yeah, always very thought-provoking. I, I always read the chapter and then... It slips my mind when I come to, to the class, so your little recap is, is useful. So my question just kind of come to me when I'm listening to you. Um, my, my practice, just to, to let you know, is pretty good. Trying to do twice a day. Um, the second one is always harder than the first to, yep. to get myself to sit. But I'm doing it more now, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a conscious effort to, to do the second one as well as the first. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested in, in some of the stuff you were saying, especially interested in what you said about the past, you know, us. So I was trying to get it clear. Are, are you saying that we, it's okay for us to understand our pasts, you know, what, what our, the way our, we were raised by our mother and father and mm-hmm. how that's, you know, how we become who we are. But it's not okay to grasp to that. Is, is that yeah. what you're saying? Yes, I, I, it, and when we I, again, we're we're kind of trained to get analytical about how we feel and how we got to be who we are, which usually leads to placing blame. Um, you know, I would say that there's nobody in the world that had perfect parents. It's it's just not possible. But we. And, and, and no, nobody had a perfect life. Some people grew up in, in horrible poverty. Some people had the, the have a, what do they call it, a golden spoon in their mouth. Um, there's, there's experiences for everyone. But it's up to us how we interpret our experiences. And then as we grow up, you know, the best description of awakening is a fully mature human being. That's what the Buddha taught. It's not something magical or mystical. It's, it's a way of understanding what it means to be in our case, an adult in this world. And so that, an adult doesn't blame other people or other things or their parents or the conditions of the world for the way they think and how they feel. They take responsibility for themselves. But of course, we don't, it would be an aspect of ignorance to say that the life we lived hasn't had an effect on us. Of course it has. But we can't continually place blame on that. Or else we'll, ne- we'll never get past the point of everything that's wrong in the world, including me, you know, poor me, you know, look at, look at what happened to me. Yeah. We're never getting anywhere. That's all an aspect of self-loathing. So the, the Buddha taught a, yeah. the difference between acceptance and approval. And as we develop the Dhamma, we understand that as well. We have it hardwired. Human beings have it hardwired that in order for, for me to accept something, I have to also approve of it. And it's two separate things. There, you, could, you could say it's two, two separate processes of approval and acceptance. I can accept anything that's occurred. Why? Because it's sensible because it's occurred. It's not sensible to not accept what's occurred already. But that doesn't mean I have to approve of it. In fact, I don't have to approve of anything. A liberated mind is a mind that doesn't approve of anything because it's not evaluating things as valuable or, or, or hurtful towards me. It's simply what's occurring in the world. And as I develop that level of concentration and refined mindfulness, then there's no disturbance in my mind no matter what's occurring. That's what the Buddha teaches. 
to maintain a calm and peaceful mind based on understanding Four Noble Truths, no matter what's occurring in my life. And there's no aspect of self-loathing in that, or other loathing for that matter, because I'm free of it. I'm free of that type of judgment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I lost my place because somebody dropped out. Um, so th- does that answer your, or, or speak to your, yeah, what you... It does, it does. For me, as, as someone who, before being on, on the Buddhist path, I did a lot of therapy. I did years and years of it. And so my default is, like that, that encouraged me to dig into my past and understand who I am. Yeah. And I see benefit in that. And I, I could, I did transform through from that, but I, I totally hear what you're saying as well. That it is a form of self-loathing to keep saying, well, I'm X, I'm like this because of that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just, that's a pattern I, I tend to fall into. So what Buddhism is helping me do is realize that I can, it doesn't matter that stuff and I can overcome that in the moment now that stuff isn't affecting me and I can overcome it yes Um, I I still have some some thoughts about I don't have to go into it now but I I, maybe I could email you but I'm interested in people who have suffered (laughs) extreme trauma you know for example and and how the Buddha would have would have encouraged them to sit and try and understand this because some people are so traumatized that they can't even set, settle their minds, you know, to, to get anywhere near this kind of teaching. Well, you bring up such an important point. That's why the, the Dhamma is structured the way it is and why I teach it the way it is. Because, and I've taught many people with diagnosed PTSD, but I'll tell you a little secret. Just about every one of us has some measure of uh, a response to the trauma of simply having a human life. And... Anyway, there's not a person that I've come across that can't start meditating with five minutes a day or even a couple minutes a day and gradually work on that. Um, it, it's gentle enough for anyone. Uh, the structure is there that uh, um, that even someone in, in severe PTSD can engage in it. And a, a, a key aspect of PTSD is also extreme self-loathing. Uh, yeah. Many people, even if you're in a, in a PTSD from a war situation, uh, you tend to blame yourself for the things that you saw and the things that you had to do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I recognize this in almost everyone. Uh, I work a lot with drug addicts and alcoholics. They, every one of them, including me, uh, have aspects of PTSD from that. Uh, but even uh, common compulsions such as food or sex or TV or golf um, all have elements of that. And so they all can, <laughs> they all can benefit from beginning just as I, I teach and the Buddha teaches. Start with short periods of meditation and gradually and gently incorporate the other factors of the eightfold path. And you can even transform a mind that's deeply um, affected by by trauma. Another thing I want to touch on, and you mentioned years and years of therapy, Alex. I I am in no way talking down therapy or saying you shouldn't do it. But you should keep it in perspective. It can only, and Alex really described it, it can only bring you to a certain point. And at some point, let me back, backtrack a little bit. Useful therapy will, will begin at least the process of uniting a mind back in the body. And Dhamma practice can, 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 uh, can finish that job, I guess is the best way to say it. So don't in any way think that uh, a good therapist uh, is not valuable, but it's not the final thing. The Buddha taught true liberation from anything that's occurred in our lives. And he taught a way to do it. So thank you for bringing that up, Alex. It was so important. Thanks, Joe. 
Uh, Mateo, how are you? Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, Good to see you. Yeah, to, to take what, what Alex says so, um, uh, about trauma or this stuff, like maybe I'm a kind of example because, like, coming from other tradition, like, uh, we do like a very tough uh, meditation sitting. So, uh, before. Five, six years, six years ago, I was like meditating like four hours every day, mm-hmm. constantly, like two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening. And then the result, uh, I found out that that was like uh, another way to craving, yep. clinging. Yep. Like it, it can be dangerous sometimes meditations. Like, I agree. Uh, and uh, it took me really many years to reduce my meditation session. And enjoy and have a qualitative um, meditation. Uh, since I start to like go in depth, like the Satipatthana, so to understand better what is it the full foundation of mindfulness, I my meditation is like time. The time is shorter, but uh, is way way better. Yeah. And I think that is really related to a trauma that I have when I was meditating like a crazy every day so i still meditate quite a lot but now it's like it's not anymore oh if if i skip like if i don't like, don't do exactly 45 minute time i get mad uh, before it was like that I feel that i like was a drug it was exactly like yep. a drug yep and, you, and that's it <laughs> yeah th- thank you Mateo. again you bring up such an important point you were taught that if you meditate long enough and hard enough you'll get a reward and that's why it's so difficult to not once you decided that you have a vested interest in it um, but what I found and what, you know, from my own experience and then teaching a, a good handful of people, um, that meditation without a structure like an eightfold path, meditation alone will almost always reinforce hurtful thoughts, words, and deeds because you have no no frame of reference for what to recognize and abandon. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and I, there's there's many instances where uh, one comes to mind. A few years ago, I got a call from a guy that actually didn't live too far from here, about 45 minutes away. And I could tell immediately the gentleman was in a panic. And I calmed him down. I said, you know, tell me why you called. What's going on with you? And he, and he told me that he's been a, a, a meditation practitioner. Um, i trying to think of what. It was about 20, 20 years. He said, for 20 years, I've been practicing meditation I'm 38 years old. I'm living the American dream. I got a great house in a town called Newtown, which is an upper class town near here. Uh, I got a great house. I got a great wife, two great kids, two cars in the garage. I got a great job and I feel like there's nothing going on in my life. And as soon as he told me that, I knew what was wrong. But I, I asked him to describe his meditation practice. And he says, well, every day I get that, I meditate and I focus on the nothingness of life. And I could almost hear the, the, the light bulb go off in his head over the phone. I said, will you repeat that? He says, well, for 20 years, I've been focusing on nothingness. And I said, and what are you experiencing? He said, nothing. His meditation practice led his, him to think in such an aberrant way that he couldn't appreciate even the most basic things in his life. That was a meditation practice that many people practice today. And I'm not going to put the label on it, but you all know what I'm talking about. I'm not beating up a whole class of modern Buddhists. I'm just making the point that meditation alone, if it's not right meditation, the Buddha classified it that way for a reason. If it's not jhana meditation practiced within the framework of an eightfold path, it will usually lead 
to even more hurtful thoughts, words, and deeds simply because we don't have a structure to recognize what we're doing to ourselves. So uh, thank you, Mateo, for bringing that up. It's such an important point. And I remember um, for quite a few years, uh, I was involved in a, again, I'm not going to name it, uh, where the practice originated from, but I went to many seven and 10 day Sashin. Sashin is a place where you meditate for 14 or 16 hours a day in a structured settle, setting. Uh, usually it's forced silence, noble silence they call it. There's nothing noble about that type of silence with walking meditation involved in it. And uh, it, w- it was always a brutal experience for me. I never could understand what I'm getting out of this, but I did it because I was associated with the group and the teacher that, that promoted this type of thinking. And by the end of these seven and 10 day sashins, the best thing about them for me was that they came to an end. And I talked to quite a few people that said the same thing. Uh, but yet we kept doing them over and over again. Why? Because we were associated with it and enough people said, this is what you need to do. And it wasn't. Uh, I, it was truly a liberating aspect of my Dhamma practice when I came across what the Buddha actually taught and learned jhana meditation. Uh, and that made all the difference in the world. So thank you, Matteo, for bringing that up. Uh, Julian, how are you? What resonates for me is what you were saying about the um, thoughts about uh, having about myself, which is, I guess, my biggest struggle at the moment. I don't know if it was here all the time, but I just was too distracted or too busy to, to really notice it. Or now that we're in lockdown since kind of December in Germany, it's coming back on me every time. I'm realizing that I'm. I guess having this kind of loop, like I'm expecting to do things which I don't manage to, and then I'm kind of beating up myself for not doing them, and then having this constant hamster wheel kind of experience. Um, Yeah, I guess that's what I'm struggling with at the moment. So the only thing that we really, I mean, all of us have things that we have to do. If we work and we got to go to work, we got to clean our house and cook our food or whatever it might be. Take care of our kids, take care of our dog. Those are all chores of having a human life. But the one thing that we have to do, we don't do, which is guard the quality of our mind. That's what the Buddha is referring to in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And we get to that point by being mindful and impersonal about what we're feeling and what we're thinking. We learn that there's nothing personal in the world. And by taking things personal, we get caught up in that, that feedback loop that you just described, Julian. Uh, all, if you look at those things that you're caught up in, it's because you're taking those, uh, the objects that you're caught up in in a personal way. When in fact, there's nothing personal at all in the world. If you want to say the one thing that's personal is our own mind, but that's just a mind that we should be treating with gentleness and kindness if that's what we want to experience in the world. Um, does that make sense to you, Julian? Yeah, it does, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so be more, um, be more, I can say it that way, be more mindful of the quality of your mind and what you're doing to affect that quality of mind than what's actually going on in your mind because that's the distraction. You know, those are the things that fall away when you're, when you're mindful of the four foundations of mindfulness. And I would also um, suggest to you that as you're, Jhana practice increases your concentration and you're able to hold in mind, refine mindfulness, the other tenets of the Eightfold Path, 
moment by moment as your life unfolds, you're going to find that that monkey mind uh, diminishes greatly. And it's really just a process of continued Dhamma practice. So, I'm glad you joined us today. Josh, how are you doing? Good, John. Thank you for the lesson. Hi, everybody. Yes, Josh. Uh, as John knows, I'm, uh, I've been at AA for about 40-plus years, and there's a lot of similarity between what the Buddha taught and, and some of the stuff you get in AA. The original 12 steps. And, and one of the things is, in AA we have this saying about, you can't think or analyze your way to right living. Yep. But you can live your way to right thinking. And it, it, it strikes me that the, the Buddha was so wise in, in kind of a be, behavior therapy to give us a roadmap, the, the, the Eightfold Path. Yep. Right view, right attitude, right intention. And at first, I, I kind of agreed with what uh, Jordan was saying, that, that uh, when I first saw this, I said, well, this is pretty simplistic. Uh, it's Obviously, if it's right, it's not wrong. And if it's not wrong, it's not right. And so forth and so But it's much more than that yeah. uh, when you get down into it if you if you just do the behavior for a while and and uh then it becomes self-explanatory about why it's right and why it's wrong and uh uh it starts falling into place and uh yeah. there's no there's no voodoo here it's just a real simple roadmap and, and, and way of, of getting rid of all this conditioned thinking that we all beat up ourselves with in terms of I should be doing this, I shouldn't be doing this, blah, 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 and on and on and on. And, and uh, uh, I still do it. I've, I've got a long ways to go, but I don't do it nearly as much as I used to since I've been hooking up with John here. So uh, that's all I got. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. And thank you for um, pointing that out. It's so important to recognize the benefits of Dhamma practice as it's occurring within you. So thank you. Tim, how are you today? Good to see you. Uh, can you unmute your mic? There you go. Um, thank you for the teaching. Uh, very nice to be at this uh, Sangha. Um, this is the third time I've gone through the Truth of Happiness. And prior to the Truth of Happiness, I went through the Dhammapada and the Vipassana studies. And, um, you know, the one thing I've come to determine um, with, with the Buddha's Dhamma is that it rolls around those three marks, you know, of being referential. John was saying, taking things personal. Uh, I tend to try to be aware 
am I being referential in this situation? Anything that's conditioned and there's a reaction to it is being referential. That's that's those are the hindrances. Those those are the those are the self-loathing, the self-doubt that we internalize as our ego being. But the reality is, is that life is not fair, and things happen all the time. And there's no grand design that is pointing out and picking on that that ego which wants to survive in this impermanent world. <laughs> it wants to have sustenance, and there isn't any. Yep. And so. I realized that the Buddha did not teach enlightenment. The Buddha teaches us liberation to, from suffering. And that's how we liberate. And that's how I like to think I can liberate myself from suffering is to understand that when I am reacting in a referential way, I'm going to react and there is going to be suffering. There's going to be the clinging and the craving. All the things that tr- the ego is trying to gain sustenance for it. That being said, based on the concentration factors, John, you know, um, in those guided meditations, John basically tells us over and over again to recognize the quality of our mind, those four foundations of mindfulness. Yeah. You know, the, the thoughts arising, the feelings arising, being mindful of the quality of our mind is, is key to being able to develop that concentration to be able to discern, to have that right view and have that eightfold path be incorporated into our daily lives. And so this is such a wonderful um, book. I think, I do I do really feel um, that, you know, it is a marathon and not a sprint. And uh, every time I go through this book and this class, I gain insight and wisdom from John and from the Sangha and from the, and from the material, from the Dhamma itself. Yeah. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Tim has been with us three or four years at least, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the uh, I just want to expand on something that Tim touched on, and I, I mentioned it earlier. The the Dhamma can only be practiced right here and right now. That's the that's the whole point of jhana meditation and refined mindfulness there's no dhamma practice yesterday there can be none tomorrow it's 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 a it's meant to be an immediate practice so every time we unite our mind in our body and consider the tenets of the eightfold path in this moment we're, we're engaging in dhamma practice right here and right now how does this relate uh, to what's occurring and again that always plays out in our behavior which is obvious to an awakened human being but not so obvious to the to the rest of us prior to the Dhamma. We like to excuse away or blame away our behavior rather than take this radical responsibility and learn the, the, the significant difference between acceptance and approval. Thank you, Tom. Glad you joined us today. Tom, how are you, last but not least? Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Um, John, it's great to see your dog in the background. It's nice yeah, <laughs> Bodhi's uh, here. Uh, yeah. yeah, there we go. Your camera at a different angle normal yeah i got it i put it i have a different camera too so all right looks very cute anyway he's a good boy um, yeah so so i a couple of things that struck me actually um especially from the discussion we've been having um definitely that idea of 
meditate i used to be a very sort of goal i'm a goal-oriented person generally but i was a very goal-oriented meditator yeah and i did a um i did one of these nine or ten ten day silent retreats that are quite yeah again famous around the world and i remember at the time thinking i'm doing this I, i read all these blogs about it beforehand people who had gone on youtube and said i did this retreat and it changed my life blah 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 and then um I remember going into it and I, I hated, not, I didn't hate every moment of it, but there was so much <laughs> craving to get out into the real world again. And I was so focused on it. It was like a boot camp. And I felt like if you do a fitness boot camp, you know, you go into it, you work really hard and you come out with a, with a six pack or whatever, right? So I thought I was going to come out with an enlightened mind. Yeah. But of course, I was just practicing more and more, um, you know, clinging. I mean, I, ha- I must have gained some concentration, but I, there was so much kind of like, I, 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 you know, looking to the end and looking to something I was going to achieve. And yeah, uh, yeah I remember coming out and thinking, oh, I'm still the same person. <laughs> like there wasn't, I was still having the same thoughts that I had had previously, you know, the same imperfections everywhere in my life. Yeah. I had d- deluded myself into thinking if I put in enough hours and I, you know, then I can somehow achieve something. And that's just not what the prep, you know, the practice is about. And yeah. I've really, really benefited from from this sango in particular because it's just a lot gentler, right? And it is, as you said, a marathon, uh, Tim. It's not a it's not a sprint, and there's nothing out there to be sort of achieved. It's um, it's 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 all about how you relate to your life in this moment. And um, so, anyway, so that was interesting. And then I also found really interesting what Jordan was saying um, about the sort of. Because again, I had that similar perception that like, is is it specific enough? You know, when you say right speech, it doesn't say. I mean, if you think of other religions and stuff, it will be like, you know, they go as specific as to say, don't eat pork or yeah. or eat fish on this day or not on that day or whatever, right? So there's so many rules, and there's you know, you have a massive. I grew up, of course, reading the Bible, um, yeah. and you know, you've got thousands and thousands of pages there of and you can get a lot more specific um but as a result it does become dated but 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 beyond that there's um the genius of of the um uh of the dharma is the simplicity and the fact that it's 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 challenging you it's you don't go to a class and think today john is going to tell me something completely new that's going to blow my mind and I'm going to learn something new, some new secret to like how to get enlightened quicker than, 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 you know, it's all about, it's, you're coming back to the same teachings and you're, you're, you have to, you have to get the truth yourself. You have to explore the truth yourself. Like what does that simple teaching mean to me and my life in this moment? And that's where you can just continue. And that's why, you know, Tim has done this course three times because every time you do it, you could easily just say, oh, I've heard that before, right speech, yeah, sure. But yep. the, the challenge is to say, okay, really, as my concentration goes deeper, what does right speech mean in my life at the moment? And how does it relate to my life? And how can I, how can it guide me towards greater, greater understanding? Um, and um, uh, yeah, towards that, com- that idea of um, living a more awakened, you know, fully human life. Um, so... Yeah, it's all, always a journey, um, and I, I, but I get that. It's that. It's sort of it's it. 
it is sometimes you want more you want more specifics like what do i what should i actually do here you want something that will be very clear right like this is but but then that's not that's not what the teaching's about it's about you you have to sort of find it yourself right based on yeah. the, on the principles and how they relate to you in your life at that moment but anyway that was just something i wanted to share i don't know if it was yeah, thank you, Tom. You, you said a lot. It, it's kind of come up twice today about the Dhamma being non-specific, but actually, it's very specific about what we must do. It doesn't get into um, individual details, like um, you know, if uh, if you find yourself on angry at politicians, you do this, and if you find yourself on eating too much chocolate cake, you do that. It has nothing to do with that. It's a it's a a comprehensive um, way of looking at ourselves in relation to the world that brings liberation. And the practice itself is very specific. It's jhana meditation twice a day. You build on that. You start with a couple minutes and you build to 20 or 30 minutes twice a day. It's very specific about incorporating the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path. So there's nothing really left up to uh, in fact, there shouldn't be anything left up to my own imagination. The difficult thing that a mind that is prone to distraction and clinging to distraction will resist any structure, including the structure of the Eightfold Path, and will find ways that, well, this doesn't work, it's not specific enough. The, the, the Dhamma is the most specific teaching I've ever come across, even, even practical teachings like how to change the oil in your car. <laughs> this is a better, more specific teaching than even something like, like that you might find uh, on the internet about that. But it means that we have to actually engage in it, like Tom was saying. And the other thing is about these, because you mentioned it, Tom, these uh, long retreats of forced silence and, and only meditation. Again, they can often increase um, wrong thinking, but there's no benefit. The Buddha never, ever taught long periods of meditation and he never taught that we should engage in forced silence he taught noble silence but noble silence can only be informed by right speech meaning in this moment if if right speech doesn't fit if there's not something helpful to say if there's not something that will that will be useful to the people i'm talking to if what i'm about to say is hurtful in some way gossip or a lie i hold my tongue that's noble silence Noble silence is informed by right speech. It's not something that we impose on ourselves or others. There's no benefit to that. So my retreats, it, it, uh, who, I don't think anybody here on screen has been on, please come to our April retreat because they're not for silence, but we engage in noble silence. I mean, we're gathered together as a sangha from Thursday night to Sunday afternoon, and we only speak of the Dhamma. And when the Dhamma isn't present, we simply keep our mouths shut. But there's no force sounds because there's no way that the, the, the beauty of a sangha is what we do right here, but we also do it on retreat. We support each other in developing the Dhamma by talking about our own Dhamma practice. And that, that's how the sangha works. That's why it's the third jewel of the three jewels. And our classes are a perfect example of that. It's remarkable, even with this burgeoning cross-pond sangha that, that, that Tom inspired, uh, in just a few short weeks, you're all speaking of the Dhamma in authentic terms. You're developing the Dhamma as it's intended. And I think that's because of, of the focus that we have here. We, we only focus on, on Dhamma practice and we keep you know, the rest of the stuff out. So th does anybody else have any questions or comments before we 
close with Meta. Okay, so you'll read. Just um, at the, the risk of going on, on about this, there's one thing I wrote down from the right effort, which was um, to avoid inappropriate thoughts and deeds. And, um, and if you say it is specific, well, wouldn't that say avoid coveting your neighbor's oxen or avoid... Um, or, or, yeah. or, Yes, but they twist around positively. Think nice, well, think nice thoughts of your of, of those around you. To concentrate on the positive aspects of. No, because just, when you're focused only on the positive, you're giving a. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but uh, the the whole notion of positive thinking um, gives an awful lot of power to negative thinking, and they're both wrong thinking. They 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 they're to think that everything is wonderful when it's not denies the Dhamma because it isn't. There's, there's suffering is inherent in having a human life, and denying that is just it, it's increasing the ignorance of four noble truths. The Buddha taught radical acceptance of all the good and all the bad in the world. It's simply what occurs in the world. So to get into the specifics of, um, if if like the Ten Commandments, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. Well, that's covered by right action, isn't it? So we don't need the. It's it's a much broader approach that doesn't get lost in the weeds of individual behavior. And, it's, and again, if you go back over the, the, what the Buddha teaches on right speech, right action, right livelihood, it covers every single aspect of human life, but in a, a, a broad but very simple way that anybody could apply to their life. So the specifics of everybody's life is different, but the Dhamma applies equally to all in that way because of its simplicity. Okay, so to your own subjectivity, um to what's ethical and what's um, what's the right thing to do. Well, we, we don't know broadly, but, but it differs from culture to culture, and I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there... doesn't want to prescribe what is and what isn't. Yeah, so you could... There's... Um, there's religions followed by millions of people today that are very hurtful to some aspect. I'm not, like, not going to specify why, because I don't want to call one out. But there's aspects of religion that, that support being hurtful towards vast numbers of people, even within that, that religious practice. We don't need to call that out. We just need to focus on, is this hurtful or helpful behavior? And as a Dhamma practitioner, I don't have to be concerned about what Muslims are doing or Christians are doing or Jews are doing or anybody else is doing, all that I need to be concerned about is what is my behavior right here and right now? And I, I avoid all the nonsense that's out in the world today. All, the, all the, 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 um, the, 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 the cancel culture that's out in the world today. All the, the wakeness that's, or wokeness that's out in the world today. All that I need to do is to be mindful of how I am and who I am in relation to the world framed by the Eightfold Path and resting in jhana practice. It's the details of my life that I've been caught up in for up until I came to jhana practice and realized that those are not important as far as, far as dhamma practice. But we're encouraged. We're encouraged to, to, to nitpick at the, the, the minor details of our life uh, because we've, we've attached ourselves to them. They're not us. You know? A great point you bring up. Avoidance and abandonment of the negative issues it makes a lot more sense that you accept that they're there, accept they're within you, and you and you, yeah, avoid them as an abandonment. So that that makes more sense why it's 
why it's phrased in the uh, in the negative way. Yeah, because that's the problem. You know, it came up on our Tuesday class. It, the the um, excuse me, the opposite poly word to dukkha is sukha, s u k k h a, which translates literally to human flourishing. We don't talk a lot about it because that's simply the result. But if we did, if I said, okay, folks, today we're going to focus on sukha, I'm putting in your minds the goal. You're no longer practicing the path. Your head is in the goal, where we're, where we're going, rather than the Eightfold Path. And so the Eightfold Path is focused on reality, meaning that as human beings, we are, distract, we are distracted by the things that we don't like or the things that we want to have more of. That you could say that's a negative aspect of human life, but it's simply human life. So to focus only on the positive things, I'm only going to be mindful of the positive we're denying most of our lives, aren't we? And that's why it's, it's so hurtful to look at life that way. There was a whole movement that, that began in my lifetime called the Positive Thinking Movement. There used to be great radio shows. Carlton Fredericks was one of you. I want to look somebody up. Tim might even know, of, and, and Josh might know of Carlton Fredericks. He had a radio show that millions and millions of people listened to day after day, including my mom. That's how I know of it. Uh, WR Radio at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Dr. Carlton Fredericks and the Power of Positive Thinking. Well, my mom was a was a was a uh, a devoted disciple of that type of thinking, and she was always confused and frustrated because life wasn't like that. She kept falling into why can't this be positive? Well, it can't be because life isn't like that. Tim mentioned that life isn't fair. Life can't be fair. How could it be fair? It's not supposed to be fair. Some people are born and they die in two minutes of their life, and some people live to one hundred and ten. There's no fairness in that. Some people are born into great wealth. Some people are born into abject poverty. Where's the fairness? There isn't any, but there's not supposed to be. There's supposed to be what the Buddha taught. One thing, understanding all of this. And we learn that through the Eightfold Path. We learn how to understand what it means to be a human being in this incredibly diverse world and to live in peace and calmness. The Buddha describes the quality of an awakened mind as calm. Calm. Nothing else. Not magical, mystical, calm. An unwavering calm rooted in understanding of the way things truly are. So an, another great class. Uh, if there's no other questions or comments, we'll finish with Meta as we always do. Okay. These are the Buddha's words on Meta from the Karaniya Meta Sutta. So again, take, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. Close your eyes, breathing through your nose. The Buddha's words, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing and gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. 
radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thanks, John. See you all next week. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.